from uh, Romans 9, uh, sorry, 8.28 on page 917 in the Church Boibles. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. For us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Becomes very prominent. And suffering is something that we Australians know something about. You know what's our, one of our iconic images of the Australian? It's the great Aussie battler. Typified in that poem, you know, we'll all be ruined, said Hanrahan, the guy that's seen the floods and the droughts and the fires and everything, fighting adversity at every step of the way. Now, we may not think of ourselves as great Aussie battlers. Our politicians try and make us feel like we are so that they can then give us the answers. But... As Christians, sometimes we can feel like we are fighting all the time. We can feel under the pump. I don't know how you feel about our culture at the moment, but I think our culture has moved from indifference to hostility. 
And we will see that, I think, more and more and more. Our, our society around us has defined what we used to think of as virtue as vice. And what we used to think as vice as virtue. Morality has been stripped around and we are on the wrong side of the debate. I don't know how you feel when you look at your own personal life. Maybe you think life is hitting you pretty hard. Maybe as Christians, we are battlers. And at the Romans, in, in the end of Romans 8, we get this incredible phrase. Verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? But maybe you sit there and go, is, is God for us? Is God for us? We may be tempted to doubt. And Paul, if you look at his life, what we see in Scripture, you would actually think that Paul had more reason to doubt than most. He gives us a list in verse 35. He gives us trouble and hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness, danger and sword. Paul had more reason than most to doubt if he just looked at his circumstances. Maybe as you look around, things just aren't working out the way that you wanted. Paul knew that firsthand. Paul doesn't look at circumstance. He doesn't look and ask, if everything's going okay, then God is for me. If everything is working out according to my plans, then God is for me. If life is good, life is comfy, life is easy, then God is for me. He doesn't go there. He doesn't go to the circumstances. Because if he did, there's no way he could say God is for him. Paul also doesn't go to his feelings. Paul doesn't go to how he's feeling at the moment. If God is for me, how do I feel? Why do I feel that life is such rubbish, that life is so hard? Paul doesn't go to his feelings. And brothers and sisters, our feelings can be such a trap. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the British preacher, wrote a book, really exciting title, called Spiritual Depression. I'm sure it's on your bestseller list. Can I say, it's a good book to read. Spiritual depression, and in it, he says this. He says, oh, the havoc that is wrought and the tragedy, the misery and wretchedness that is to be found in the world simply because people do not know how to handle their own feelings. Paul doesn't go to his circumstances. He doesn't go to how he feels about it. Because if he did, he speaks in 2 Corinthians of being burdened with his concern for the churches. He speaks of other points of despairing, even of life itself. Maybe you know what that's like. Do you feel that God is for you? That's not a question that Paul asks. And the danger for us is that when we are in tough times, when we are going through difficult situations, 
we can look at our circumstances, we can look at our feelings, and we conclude that actually God, God is not for us. Or we rework our theology on the run. And we say things like, my God would never do that. My God would never allow that. And brother, sister, maybe your God wouldn't. But is your God the God of the Bible? Because Paul doesn't go to how he's feeling. He doesn't go to his circumstance. He goes to what he knows of God in God's word. He says, what do we say in response to these things? What is the these things? What God has done for us in Christ. We looked at last week, God's great purpose. It's there in Romans 8, 28 and 29. God works for the good of those who love him. What's that good? Jump down into verse 29. That good is to be conformed into the image of Christ. To be remade, to be transformed into the character and likeness of Christ. Not that we all look like first century Middle Eastern Jews. That's not what Paul's talking about, obviously. But he is saying that as Jesus on earth captured true humanity, perfect humanity, as God is at work in us, That is what he is doing. He is transforming us into the likeness of Christ. He is perfecting our humanity. He is cleansing us of the derangement and defilement of sin. That is what God is doing. And so when the Christian thinks about his or her life, we should never think that God promises it to be easy. C.S. Lewis has a great little quote when he talks about this idea. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks on the roof, so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. That is what God is doing. God in everything is working for our good and our good is to be conformed, transformed into the image of Christ and that is God's end goal. And our suffering is a part of that process. God is at work in our pain. He is at work in our struggles and our despairs, in our heartache and tears. And he is making us, day by day, more like Christ. We may not see it. 
We may be like going for a bushwalk in the hills, and that's the view. You know, you ever done that? You've gone walking, and 10 feet either side of you is nothing but a white mist. But brothers and sisters, it may not be till the end. Sometimes the mist clears and you get a glimpse on the way. But at the end of the walk, the view is incredible. And God promises us that we will get there. God promises us by his sovereign promises that his ends will be achieved. Brothers and sisters, this is a great promise. It's a hard promise because it doesn't promise that things will be easy. It doesn't promise that things will go right. It doesn't promise that God will answer every prayer the way that we want. Can I say, if you are in a good patch, pay special attention to this. It's really hard sometimes when life is difficult to hear this kind of message. It's kind of like trying to build a plane when it's actually in the air. You're trying to fix it up. You're trying to get it going while you're actually in the middle of it doing. It's obviously much easier to build the plane on the ground. It's much easier to get a biblical understanding of suffering and God's purposes when you're not in the midst of trials. If you are, hang in there. Hang in there. God says, he is for us. Who can be against us? And as Paul considers it, he doesn't go, as we said, to his circumstances or to his feelings. What is the foundation that he goes to? He goes to the gospel. He goes to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He goes to those historical events that underlie the whole Christian life. And he particularly goes to the status that is ours in Christ of being justified, righteous. That is the foundation upon which he can say, nothing can stand against us. Later on, he'll say that we are literally uber conquerors. We are hyper conquerors. We are more than conquerors. Why? Because of Christ. And here, in these verses, 33 to 34, he attacks the first great enemy that the Christian faces, their own sin. And he asks three questions. Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? What's the answer? Of course he's going to do it. Of course he's going to do it. He spent extraordinary amounts on the gift. Is he going to skimp on the wrapping? He's bought the Maserati. He's paid for it in cash. Is he going to leave it without petrol because he's a skimp? He's given us Jesus. Surely he's going to get us there because that's the easy thing. That's the easy thing. Paul goes on and he says, Who will bring any charge against those God has chosen? What's the answer? No one. Because the judge, the judge has declared you right. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. It doesn't matter whose other opinion that's there. If the judge has declared you right, declared you just, 
It doesn't actually matter what anyone else says. Nothing will take that verdict away. There is no appeal. There is no miscarriage of justice. The judge has declared us right. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? In case you didn't get it, no one. Jesus Christ, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. If there's anyone who knows our sin to its depths, if there's anyone who knows the horrible depravity that we hide even from ourselves, it is Christ because he bore it all on the cross. And here Paul tells us that Jesus speaks at our trial, but not for the prosecution, for the defence. Who can bring a charge? Who is the one who can condemn? No one. Paul gives us the gospel as the foundation. And he says, our standing with God is 100% of the gospel in terms of our future. And then he brings it back to our present. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul moves from the first great enemy, sin, to the second great enemy, suffering. And he gives us the same answer. The gospel is the reason why we can say nothing is against us with sin. The gospel is the reason that we can say nothing is against us in terms of suffering. He moves on to the litany of pain. We saw it. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. If you read Paul's own experience in 2 Corinthians 11, taking notes, verse 23 through to 30, he talks about the stuff that he went through. He talks about his pain. But what does he say? In the face of everything that is thrown against us, everything that is thrown against you, what does he say? Verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I want to just draw your attention. Look at those last two words. I'll make it four. Him who loved us us. He didn't say him who loves us. He is again pointing back to the completed work of Christ. And in the face, in the face of all those things that stand against us, he gives us the greatest demonstration of God's love for us at the gospel, at the gospel. So brother, Sister, no matter what you are facing now, God's love for you can never be shaken. Paul's answer is tied up with the whole issue of the sovereignty of God. The idea that God determines the end from before the beginning. That God is at work in all things. That people determine their, their steps, but the Lord lays the path out. The Bible is clear that God is sovereign, that nothing happens 
apart from his sovereign will. And to underline this, Paul gives us a little quote there in verse 36. He quotes Psalm 44. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Psalm 44. I wasn't until I looked it up. Psalm 44 is a psalm of faithful Israel. As Israel was judged and sent into exile, not all Israel was bad. Not all Israel was rebellious. And it's not like that God put a little bubble around the good ones and left them alone. All of Israel got caught up in the judgment that fell on Israel. And you see it there. I've printed it out in your notes. The psalmist writes, you have rejected and humbled us. You made us retreat before the enemy. You gave us up to be devoured. You sold your people for a pittance. You see it? You. It's not that these things are impersonal things that just happen. And then God tries to work out something good that he can bring out of this horrible situation. Where does the psalmist point the finger? Straight at God. Maybe you're familiar with the story about Job. The story about how Satan goes before the Lord and says, you know, Job, your righteous servant, he wouldn't serve you if you weren't protecting him. And so Satan, Satan says to God, pull away your protection, strike him down. It's there in chapter 1, verse 11. Stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. That is Satan's word to God. He is telling God to strike Job. The next verse, the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Who struck Job? God or Satan? Job is under no illusions. Verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. What he's not saying is the Lord gave and Satan has taken away. The Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. And may the name of the Lord be praised. God has purposes in our pain. Job teaches us that we will never perhaps know what those purposes are until the end. The end of the book of Job has Job confronted by God saying, Where were you when I created everything? Are you God? Brothers and sisters, we need to hear that. Because God is God. His great love for us has been proved once and for all at the cross. If God will do that for you, will he be ripping you off now? God ordains suffering for many reasons. And all of them are for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All of them are focused on forming Christ in us. Look at the examples in scripture. Joseph, you know, Joseph sold into slave, betrayed by his brother, betrayed by a jealous woman. 
in jail. What does he say? He says in Genesis 50, 20, you thought you were doing evil, but God planned it for good. The Apostle Paul himself in Acts 9, 16, he is told by Ananias, the Christian who meets him when he's blind after the encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Ananias is told to tell Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of the Lord. The word must is a little Greek word that is always used in terms of the divine necessity. This is the plan of God. And Paul must suffer. The Lord Jesus himself, Acts chapter 4. The apostles are speaking. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The apostles don't let Herod, Pontius Pilate and Israel off the hook, but they do acknowledge that God is sovereign. Brothers and sisters, if God can work good through Joseph, if God can work good through Paul, if God can work through good through Jesus' suffering, can he not work good in our pain? The incredible comfort that we have is that because God is sovereign, because this is the path that he's laid before your feet, God's purposes are being worked out. The all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God who loved you so much that he gave you Christ. That's the foundation. That's the conviction that we have. That God has determined that the path of greatest blessing for you will take you through pain. And God is at work as you take each and every step. God is not trying to react, to bring a, a good thing out of something horrible that's happened. God is at work in everything. It is God who picks the path. And even though it is paved with tears, it will end with blessing. So how do we live as Paul encourages us to? We are more than conquerors. I've put in your notes, uber conquerors. I like the term, personally. How do we, how do we live as more than conquerors? We rejoice. Because why are we more than conquerors? Because we have overcome through Christ. Because the victory that is given is something that is completely secure because in Christ it is finished. It doesn't depend upon our strength. It doesn't depend about anything to do with us at all. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So an uber-conqueror, a hyper-conqueror, is one who will put his, her roots deep down into that gospel of grace, to do what Paul did, to live knowing that it doesn't depend on how I'm feeling, it doesn't depend upon what the circumstances look like, 
It doesn't depend on whether we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We know that Christ has gone before us and walks with us. As we groan, as creation groans, the Spirit groans himself. There is nothing that can take that. Live deep in that gospel. Preach it to yourself. As I said before, when times are good, don't just get lazy, don't just get slack. When times are good, go down deep so that when the hard times come, you have the foundation firmly under your feet. You know You know the faithfulness and love of God and so it arms us ready to face difficulties. As we sing of the grace of God, as we hear it read and taught, we read it and study it ourselves, as we share every fortnight this simple reminder that God worked great blessing for us through the suffering and pain of his son. Rejoice in the gospel. Hold to God's promises. They're all yes in Christ. Go back to the gospel. Go back to the gospel. Never move beyond it. If you move to look at your circumstances, if you move to look at your feelings, those things will shift like shifting sands. But the rock of the gospel will never move from under your feet. For those of you who are suffering now, when you can't see God's hand, Spurgeon wrote this, trust God's heart. When you can't answer why, when you can't fathom as Psalm 44 says, The psalmist can't either. He looks at his life and he says, we've done nothing wrong. We've lived faithfully. Why, God? Don't ever go away from that gospel. That is the one rock that will never shift. But if you look at Psalm 44, the psalmist, quite an impertinent psalmist, tells God to wake up. I love Psalms like that because it actually shows me that God can deal with my pain. He can deal with my angst. He can deal with my maybe pettiness as I accuse him of all sorts of things. The psalmist knew that God was not asleep. But he felt that God was asleep. But he came to God in his pain. And for those of us, for those of us who walk alongside, can I encourage you, your suffering sister, your suffering brother probably doesn't need you to defend God to them. When they say things, I can't believe that God would do this. They don't need their theology straightened out necessarily. They need to be reassured of his love. They need to know that Christ knows the depth of their pain. And as Romans 12 verse 15 encourages us,
They need someone to weep with those who are weeping. Be with them as God is with them and just be that rock that points them back again and again and again to the promises of the gospel. I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are not distant. You've not set this world in motion and then walked away. Father, you are intimately involved in all the lives of your people. Your sovereign power is at work, taking us through hard roads that we might reap a harvest of righteousness. Father, we struggle. We don't always know why things happen. Sometimes we long that they would happen not to us. We don't know what you are doing in the here and the now, but we do know that you are conforming us to the image of Christ, that you will take us to be with you in glory, and that is secure. Father, take us back by your spirit to the gospel again and again and again. Never let our feet slip. Because, Father, you have put the gospel of grace under our feet. You have given us Christ. We ask that you would give us a confidence that you will give us everything else that you have promised as well. And with him, we will share in your glory. And we pray it in his most precious name. Amen.